Before we get into today's episode, I have an important announcement. We're wrapping up Church Matters after 10 years of serving you with timely interviews on the state of the church. It's been my pleasure and privilege to bring you each one of these episodes. I hope that you've enjoyed listening as much as I've enjoyed meeting and interviewing our guests and hearing from listeners. Thank you to each of you who tune in via radio or podcast, to each of our guests over the years, and to Golden West Radio for sharing church matters over the airwaves. Thanks also to Brian Moyer-Suderman, who has allowed us the free use of his song, As You Go Out From Here, which has been our signature song at the end of each program. And remember that all 10 years' worth of episodes are available to stream online at commonword.ca. The violent creation of the Israeli state in 1948 caused more than 750,000 Arab-speaking Palestinians to flee. They became refugees and were not allowed to return. Israel's conquest of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem in the Six-Day War of 1967 displaced 300,000 more Palestinians. There have been devastating bombings and a crippling siege of Gaza in the last decade. Policies that discriminate against Palestinian Arabs who comprise 20% of the citizens of Israel proper continues. Before the formation of the State of Israel in 1948, Christians from many traditions, Orthodox, Catholic, Protestant, and Evangelical, made up about 30% of the Arab population of Palestine. The roots of the Palestinian people in this land go back hundreds of years, for some to the very beginnings of the Church at Pentecost. Historically, Muslims, Christians, and Jews in the region lived together in relative harmony. Jonathan Kutab believes that Mennonites should be among the first and foremost to speak out because of their Anabaptist roots in pacifism. Mr. Kutab is a leading human rights lawyer in Israel and Palestine. Born in West Jerusalem, his family moved to the United States after the Six-Day War in 1967. After practicing with a Wall Street law firm for several years, he returned home to co-found the Palestinian Center of Nonviolence, Al-Haq, lawyers and others who assist with human rights issues, and the Mandela Institute for Political Prisoners. He has also served with Mennonite Central Committee in Palestine. Mr. Kutab is licensed to practice law in Palestine, Israel, and New York and serves on the board of the Sabil Ecumenical Liberation Theology Center in Jerusalem. A graduate of Messiah College in Pennsylvania, he attends Community Mennonite Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and recently helped Mennonite Church USA prepare for its vote regarding a resolution on Palestine and Israel in July 2017. Welcome to Church Matters, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Jonathan, how does a Palestinian-American get to know Mennonites and then become one? Well, actually, I got to know Mennonites before I came to the United States uh, through Hope Secondary School in Bejala, where uh, a Mennonite uh, missionary uh, suggested that I go to school at Messiah College, which is affiliated with the Mennonite uh, Central Committee. It's actually Brethren in Christ, one of the historic peace churches in uh, uh, MCC. Uh, that's that's how I began to uh, learn about Mennonites and uh, eventually uh, found their teachings in the Anabaptist uh, tradition to be very attractive and very close to my heart and very close to my beliefs. 
And where is Bejala? Bejala is a little town right adjacent to Bethlehem in the West Bank. How did you become active in international human rights law, and how is your work connected with your Anabaptist Christian faith? Well, from the beginning, I think my understanding of the Christian faith was a nonviolent one, was a pacifist one. Uh, at the same time, the oppression and the humiliations and the conflict uh, that I was feeling uh, as a Palestinian living under occupation, living in exile, my family uh, I was re- were refugees from West Jerusalem, meant that I could not be silent. I had to do something, but I knew that I couldn't pick up the gun and shoot and fight because that wasn't the right thing to do. So I was seeking a way to actually fight for justice, fight for uh, freedom, fight for dignity and equality, uh, but, but seeking weapons of light against the forces of darkness. So law and human rights uh, and activism in those fields seemed to be just the perfect thing uh, for me. And, and, and so I, I moved in that direction. Can you share a little bit of your story about fleeing Palestine in the, during the Six-Day War? What was that like? Actually, it, it's very interesting because uh, the, the Six-Day War was, was a very short war, and, and there weren't a lot of casualties, uh, but there was some movement of population, and there was a pressure on people to leave. Uh, but the memory of 1948, when those who left their homes were never allowed to return, was fresh in people's minds. So most people decided, opted to stay where they were rather than uh, flee. And uh, it, it was a good decision because that's how they could stay in their land and stay on, on the land. The result, of course, was that they lived under military occupation, which many felt was a temporary state of affairs uh, until Israel would withdraw and and return the land in return for peace. The land for peace formula or the two-state formula was very much in people's minds uh, that that is how you resolve the problem. Uh, Land in return for peace, that somehow we would split the land. Unfortunately, with all the settlements being built, pretty soon it became clear that the Israelis wanted to keep the occupied territories and put up settlements throughout them. And and that brought us back to the drawing boards of the conflict between Palestinian nationalism and on the one hand and Zionism and the idea of a, a Jewish state on the other hand, which is where we find ourselves today after 50 years. Mm. How did you and your family get out? Well, my father actually was out of the West Bank when the war took place, and uh, he had to be smuggled back in. In those days, the borders were still quite porous, and uh, many people who tried to get smuggled back in either were turned back or were shot, and he managed to get back. It's, It's an interesting story, Uh, that at its heart is the conflict over land and people. Who lives in that land, who owns that land, who is allowed to stay on that land, and on what conditions? Is it on the conditions of equality or exclusivity? Is it all mine and I want to keep everybody else out, or is there a way that we can share? And if we both live in that land, which is what's happening now, Do we live on the basis of equality 
or on the basis of privilege, one group having rights and the other group being oppressed. What would you most like North American Christians to know about Palestinian Christians? Well, speaking to Mennonites especially, I think it it should be curious for you to know uh, not only that there is a Christian Palestinian population, (laughs) but that this population is probably the only population since the early church where the majority of Christians, the decisive majority of Christians from all different denominations understand the teachings of Jesus Christ to prohibit them from killing other human beings. Uh, Let let me repeat that. For 2,000 years, in every country, the majority of Christians have found a way to excuse war and to join the killing machine of their country on both sides of every conflict. Uh, And as I said, except for the early church, the Palestinian church today, with all its denominations, the majority of Christians understand the teaching of their Lord and Savior to prohibit them from killing other human beings. As Mennonites, I think you should be very pleased and proud because you have always been a faithful minority who have insisted, uh, as Menno Simon said, that, that you know, we can't, we can't uh, treat other human beings as if their blood and their lives are worthless, the same as pigs. It just doesn't, doesn't jibe with the teachings of Jesus Christ. Many Christians are uncritical of the state of Israel. Uncritical Christians are often reluctant to get publicly involved in these contentious issues. What are the barriers to good advocacy and how can we overcome them? Well, I think it's very important that Christians be very clear. Anti-Semitism is a sin and has, in fact, been a blight on the Christian church throughout the centuries, Mm -hmm. culminating in the Holocaust. Uh, there's, There's no question about that. Uh, But that doesn't mean that when the state of Israel gains power and becomes oppressive itself, that they are to be exempt from the requirements of justice and uh, international law and respect for other people. I remember one pastor in Chicago saying that uh, he's always been afraid of addressing the Palestinian question for fear of being called anti-Semitic. And he says, down deep in my heart, maybe I was a little anti-Semitic. And until I got down on my knees and repented from the sin of anti-Semitism and accepted God's forgiveness, only then was I able to speak about justice for the Palestinians. So I would urge Mennonites, first of all, to look into their hearts and see if they can rid themselves of anti-Jewish, anti-Semitism, and then they will be free to address Jews about their violations of human rights, their privileged supremacy, their excessive reliance on military force, and their oppression of the Palestinian people. Easy to say and hard to do. Yes, it is hard, but then I think this is also part of a calling for Mennonites 
to be clear about their identity, who they are and what they believe in. In many ways, North American Mennonites have become comfortable and soft and acclimated to the world and culture in which they live. Uh, even their pacifism is a uh, privilege because uh, the United States and Canada readily accept and respect conscientious objection. It's no longer a risk. It's no longer a struggle to be uh, a pacifist and a Mennonite. Uh, so uh, it's almost a challenge for Mennonites to be willing to pay a price for what they believe in. Uh, because Mennonites haven't been doing that for many, many years. We live a comfortable existence in uh, North America, and uh, sometimes maybe we really need to go back to what do we really believe in? Are we willing to risk uh, standing up for what we believe in when it's uncomfortable, when it's unpopular, when there's a risk that we may lose friends or, or jobs or respect or tenure or uh, business opportunities or uh, acceptance. We don't want to be criticized anymore. We, we are comfortable uh, where we are. Uh, I think that that is a challenge. It's an easy resting place, isn't it? It is. It is. And, and, and it's not easy to support the Palestinians. It's the one, <laughs> perhaps the one cause for which... Uh, uh, there, there are no upside other than really doing the right thing, other than pleasing God. Uh, you don't get any accolades. You don't get any praise. Uh, you don't get anybody patting you on the back and saying, good for you. Uh, you're standing up for Palestinians. Nobody does that. Uh, it's, it's the one uh, issue which uh, you must do out of conviction, not out of uh, seeking uh, public praise. I want to talk a little bit more about your words, you said it's hard to support Palestinians. And I think much of that has to do with the predominance of news media that portrays Palestinians in a certain way. Well, that is true. Can you say more about that? Not only the news, uh, the church also portrays them in a certain way. Uh, the culture portrays them in a certain way. Somehow, partly, I think, as, as a result of uh, the Holocaust and the anti-Semitism in the West... Uh, today, uh, Jews in the West are in a position of uh, relative power and privilege uh, in the media, in the film industry, in the book industry, in the circles of power. Uh, they are not vulnerable anyway, anymore the way, for example, Muslims are. They are viewed as part of uh, society and, in fact, part of the decision makers in this society, which is not to say there isn't any anti-Semitism still left on, on the individual level, but certainly on the official uh, level, uh, they, they are actually part of uh, the, the establishment. Uh, they have access to the, the, the levers of power that will ensure that they will not be persecuted or discriminated against anymore. Palestinians and Arabs, on the other hand, uh, find themselves in the reverse position, where they are the vulnerable community. They are the ones who uh, can be profiled, uh, can be singled out, can be discriminated against, uh, where their presence 
uh, even their presence in, in, in a legislature, for example, or, or in a position of authority, uh, always gets questioned. Uh, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to create Sharia law? Uh, you are the other. You are the, 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 the opposite of what our society stands. So uh, I think this is very true that the culture as a whole, society as a whole, I think has moved from a position where it used to hate Jews to the position where it, it accepts Jews but hates others, the Arabs, the Muslims. And of course, you, when you hate somebody, you dehumanize them, you demonize them, uh, you build negative stereotypes about them. And as all stereotypes, it has a little bit of truth in it, of course, mm. but you generalize on the whole population. Uh, they are all terrorists. They are all violent. They are all enemies of our culture, our way of life, uh, because that's easier than uh, to uh, dismiss them, to ignore them, and to demonize them. Let's talk a little bit about this idea of the promised land. Zionists, both Christian and non-Christian, subscribe to a belief that the Jewish people are predestined to establish a Jewish state. Others see Zionism as a problem that privileges Jews and treats Palestinians as second-class citizens, as you've said so well. And then there are all the different varieties of scripture interpretation. How can we build bridges of understanding between these different views? Most of the preachers and televangelists who, uh, who promote the Christian Zionist interpretation are really very shallow both in their understanding of scripture and in their understanding of politics and modern day uh, affairs. Uh, they cherry pick a few verses uh, from here and there, string them together out of context uh, to try and titillate our feelings that this is fulfillment of prophecy, that we are living in the last days. And, and the, the goalposts keep changing, of course, uh, as, as the events develop. And Jesus warned us against that type of misunderstanding of prophecy in a predictive way. Palestinian Christians have uh, tried to deal with this issue theologically. Uh, at Bethlehem Bible College, where in Bethlehem, we held a number of conferences called Christ at the Checkpoint, where we tried to understand theologically, to read the Bible critically. What would Jesus do if he were here today? How do we understand our relationship to power uh, when you're at the checkpoint, when you're dealing with daily uh, discrimination? The reality. And racism, with the realities, but also how do we understand Scripture in its proper context? And Jesus actually was very clear on this issue. Even speaking as a rabbi, he rejected the type of tribal particularism. Don't call yourself children of Abraham. God can create out of stones children of Abraham. And then we who were not a people before are now the people of God and the inheritors of the promises. You, you, you hear that in the epistles. Uh, the, the early church was very clear that God did not actually displace the Jewish people. He expanded the concept of God's people to include people like us who are not Jewish. 
who were uh, now become part of God's uh, kingdom. And the whole concept of the land also has changed. Uh, Jesus, when talking to the Samaritan woman, was very clear that God is not a local territorial God who is worshipped here and nowhere else. Uh, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, this is Jesus' message. It's a universal message. It's not a particular and exclusive message. In fact, he blamed the Pharisees. He says, you were given the keys to the kingdom of God. You didn't go in, and you don't allow anybody else to go in. That type of exclusivity, we are the only ones who hold the truth. Our land is the holy land. This is where God needs to be worshipped. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You have it wrong. In fact, the most precious, the most sacred, the most holy place in, in, in Christianity, the holy sepulcher, the empty tomb, is important precisely because it's empty. He is not there. Jesus is not buried there. He is alive. He is everywhere. He is in our hearts. So Christianity and Jesus came, in fact, to fulfill Scripture in a way that opens up the message to the whole world. And, and, and when you get Christian Zionists today trying to recreate a tribal God who cares about Jews but not about anybody else, who cares about the Holy Land, but not about all land, uh, who wants to establish a new kingdom. I mean, Jesus faced that problem with some disciples. Is this the time when you are going to establish the new kingdom? Is this when you want to create uh, the Jewish state for the Jewish people? He says, guys, you're so far off. This is not what I am about. I am about God's love for all mankind, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the message of Christianity is just so antithetical to the teachings of Christian Zionism. It's, it's, it's a wonder that it's gotten any traction. And I think it only gets traction when there is no serious theological challenge from the other side. When I, as a Palestinian Christian, step into any group that believes in Christian Zionism, I say, what do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? Negate myself, deny my identity as a Palestinian and even as a Christian, give up my home, my land, just so that another group can be privileged and be able to rule it in a very secular, dominant, colonial fashion. This is not what Jesus is about. And this is not what Christianity is about. Well, that's a profound explanation for all of us, I think, and gets right at the heart of how we have pitted the words of Jesus against other prophecy and other, as you say, cherry-picked scriptures elsewhere in scripture. Yeah, I am not really concerned about the theological issues with Christian Zionism because I think their theology is very, very shallow and doesn't stand up to uh, scriptural scrutiny. I am more worried about the uncritical sort of feeling that, you know, we read in the Old Testament, Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho. 
and uh, the people of God, the Israelites fighting the Philistines somehow at a subconscious level gets translated into the modern-day Israelis fighting Palestinians. And it's just totally ahistorical and abiblical. And it doesn't stand to the light of any serious study, either of the Bible or of the, the situation on the ground. That is why I always urge people, go there and see. Go there and visit Palestinian Christians in the West Bank, in Bethlehem, in Jerusalem. Go to Gaza if you can be allowed. Take part in Christ at the Checkpoint. Uh, they are available online, by the way. Mm. And we're, we're, there's going to be a Christ at the Checkpoint conference in the United States, in Oklahoma, next oh. year for those who can't make the trip overseas. Uh, and, and when you see the situation on the ground, you cannot possibly maintain the, the position of Christian Zionism, I think. There have been many proposed solutions for peace in the Middle East. Are there any new or out-of-the-box ideas that hold more promise than proposals considered so far? I think so. I, th I think that after 50 years of occupation uh, and the building of settlements and creating new facts on the ground, the idea of a two-state solution is, go is very, very, very difficult to maintain anymore. And people must begin to think that both Israeli Jews and Palestinian Arabs are destined to live in that land together. And the issue is, do they live in apartheid with one group having all the power and the privilege and the vote and the democracy and access to resources and the other being oppressed, discriminated against, disenfranchised, denied rights and, and basically colonized? Or, or is there a way for them to live together uh, in, in some measure of equality and some relative justice uh, for both sides. And that calls for rethinking Zionism, rethinking Arab nationalism for that matter, and thinking in new ways. And uh, perhaps Mennonites have something to contribute, that a minority can in fact live in dignity within a larger majority without giving up their identity, uh, who they are, and, and becoming and participating in the life of society on the basis of acceptance and mutual respect. But to do that, you have to be willing to uh, basically buck the system. You have to be willing to say, I believe in certain things because they are right, not because they are convenient, not because they are popular, not because this is what everybody likes to hear, but because this is the rock bottom of who I am. Uh, just like I believe in, in injustice, I believe in equality, uh, I will not tolerate things like colonialism, I will not tolerate things like racism, I will not tolerate things like anti-Semitism or Islamophobia, I will not tolerate uh, things that say the only meaningful power in the world is, is military power and violence. I believe in human dignity. I believe in the brotherhood of man. I believe in equality. I believe in cooperation. These are very radical ideas, and uh, Mennonites believe in them. 
and it's time to put them in practice. So you responded to my question about new and out-of-the-box ideas with a challenge yes. back to us. What then are some very effective practical ways that Christians here in North America can be involved in working for peace in Palestine and Israel? Well, uh, there are very specific things that can be done. For example, the situation in Gaza is so thoroughly and totally intolerable at any possible level. Give me some examples about what makes okay. it so intolerable. There's two million people in Gaza living in a very narrow strip of land, about 30 kilometers long and between five and eight kilometers wide, and living under constant siege for the last 10 years. A total siege. Nobody can go in or out without the Israelis permitting them, and they don't. No goods can go in or out. The Israelis control uh, how much building material is allowed, if any, uh, how much water can go in. 95% of the water is not drinkable in Gaza, which means that if a family really wants to drink proper water, bottled water, it has to spend two-thirds of its income just on water. Electricity. It's down to about three hours of electricity every day. And we're not talking about a distant village which hasn't yet seen electricity. We're talking about a population. A developed area. A developed area that, that for at least two generations has, has, has lived on electricity. Can anybody survive on three hours of electricity a day or fuel? And there's absolutely no possible reason to allow the situation to go in other than the fact that we have demonized Hamas and therefore we've demonized all of Gaza. To the extent that we think about the Palestinians at all, we think about the West Bank and we forget about Gaza totally. Two million people living under siege. That siege needs to be lifted. Okay, you don't want weapons to come in. Actually, that's the only thing <laughs> that is, that, that's being successfully smuggled into Gaza today is weapons. Hmm. But ordinary things for people to live, you know, for schools, uh, for, for daily life, for food, food. The Israelis, you know, one Israeli general was asked, you know, are you trying to starve the Palestinians? He says, no, we're just trying to put them on a very strict diet. And we thought it was a joke until it came out that the Israelis were actually calculating how many calories a day does each person need to just barely survive and allowing that many truckloads of food into Gaza. This is absolutely horrible, and it cannot be allowed to continue. So getting back to my question then, and those are gut-wrenching stories and examples. Getting back to my question then, how can Christians here in North America be involved in working for peace? Well, I, I think we have to be willing to face within ourselves uh, the complicity of the church, the complicity of the Western governments in what is happening in Palestine, Israel. We must work immediately to lift the siege of Gaza. We must work for peace in new ways. We cannot continue to be obsessed with Israel's security and give them more weapons because what they need is not more weapons. 
What they need is more understanding, more reconciliation, more equality, more justice. Actually, what Israel needs is uh, friends who will be willing to talk some tough love to them. That violence doesn't work. That to achieve what you want, you don't need more weapons. You need to make peace with the Palestinians and you need to make concessions. And you need to provide equality and to provide justice and to provide you human rights. So rather than trying to excuse their violations of human rights on the basis of they have a difficult situation, uh, they, they suffered so much, uh, the Holocaust and what happened in the Holocaust somehow uh, gives them uh, a privilege or gives them an out. Uh, instead, they need some tough friends who say, enough. You must work for peace, and peace does not mean getting everything your way. doesn't mean imposing your will on a subject population. You've already encouraged folks to visit, to find out what the situation is like on the ground. Correct. Step two, once I understand that and I see what's happening, I can do what? I can write a letter to the Israeli prime minister. Is that going to matter? Do I put pressure on my politicians here in Canada, my elected officials? Absolutely. Do I, what do I do? What's practical? Absolutely. At every level, I think, yes, you need to, to talk to the Israelis. You need to talk to your government. But you also need to talk to your Jewish friends. Instead of sitting there in fear of working for justice because you don't want to lose your friend, I think you need to go directly to your friend and say, what are you doing? What are your people doing? What are you supporting? And how could you possibly be supporting them? I, th I think the Jewish community in Canada, some of them are very active for justice and for peace. We have the independent Jewish voices in Canada who are very good. But they need their Christian friends to be brave enough to stand with them and say, what Israel is doing is wrong. And if you love Israel, you don't support them in their violations of human rights. You don't reward them by uh, giving them political support at the United Nations. You don't reward them by giving them more weapons. You don't reward them by exempting them from international law, by buying the products of settlements by supporting and investing in their industries that are based on the suffering of Palestinians. So the, there is a movement called BDS, boycotts, divestments, and sanctions. You need to call them to task. Until you stop doing those things, there has to be a price that you have to pay for it. And, and we can't exempt you uh, from paying a price for policies that are clearly violating international law and violating the rights of other people. Uh, th this idea that because Jews have suffered in the past, because of the Holocaust, because the Christian church has been guilty of anti-Semitism, that somehow it no longer can speak to issues of justice. You know, if, if, if the Christian church has been, and it has been, guilty of anti-Semitism, it needs to repent, be forgiven, and then move forward. I always make a distinction between genuine guilt and guilt feelings. 
Genuine guilt is something that the Holy Spirit uses to convict us of sins so that we can be forgiven and change direction. Guilt feelings, on the other hand, are never helpful. They just make you squirm, make you feel uncomfortable, make you want to avoid the question altogether and stop dealing with it. Guilt feelings are not helpful. There's a lot of guilt feelings about Israel and about Jews and about anti-Semitism, which is not helpful because it turns around and becomes an alibi to allow Israel to oppress Palestinians. In family dynamics, there is a theory or a belief even uh, that where family abuse happens generationally, the oppressed become oppressors. Do you think that's a fair analogy to make in this situation? I think it is true. I think it is true. When I was working on human rights uh, in the initial period, it was very hard for people to hear us uh, because when we talk about torture, say it's impossible. Somebody who have gone through the Holocaust, who have been oppressed for so long, who have been tortured, they could not become torturers. And I turn around and say, no, it's precisely those people who, who, who could be tempted in that direction because they saw that that's what was done to them. Uh, one time I really shocked an audience by telling them that Israelis seem to have learned the wrong lesson uh, from their Nazi experience, uh, namely that Hitler was right, that power and blood and iron is all that matters. That's the wrong lesson to learn from the Nazis. You have to learn the opposite lesson, that that doesn't work, that what works is love that what works is justice, that what works is a legal international system that respects the rights of, of, of people uh, rather than blood and iron and, and power. Uh, so there is a lot of learning that needs to take place, and there's a lot of healing that needs to take place. And, and, and when I think about what Jewish people went through during the Holocaust, uh, I think there needs to be a lot of healing uh, rather than a lot of pampering, rather than allowing them to get away with things simply because they were... Uh, and, and I think the same applies for the Palestinians. Just because we have been victims doesn't exonerate us from violating rights of others, from attacking and killing civilians, for example. The fact that we are oppressed is not an excuse for us to go and oppress or kill innocent people. So we have to realize that what you experienced in the past may influence your behavior today, but shouldn't be an excuse for you to do the same thing to other people. In southern Manitoba, here where I live, there is a significant Jewish and pro-Israel community. What message would you like to leave for them? I would like to tell them that the suffering of the Jewish people in the past the anti-Semitism that they have experienced for millennia uh, is real. But Zionism and the state of Israel may not be the full answer to these things. And that somehow there needs to be a new reality where, yes, never again will we allow this to happen to the Jewish people but never again will we allow this to happen to any people. That wherever there is racism, discrimination, 
genocide, ethnic cleansing, people of goodwill must band together to stop it. That victims of previous injustice cannot be given a free pass to carry out justice themselves. I would tell them that if you really love the state of Israel, you need to practice some tough love. You need to tell them that they are on the wrong path, that they cannot just rely on military power alone, that they need to make friends, not need to make more enemies, that they need to open up to equality, not to use their power to create dominance and privilege over other people, that their survival and the survival of their loved ones doesn't depend on having nuclear power to defend themselves, but on turning their enemies into their friends. You know, I tell my Israeli Jewish friends that if you're worried about Israel's security today, don't give them more F-36s because the, 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 the danger to Israel today doesn't come from an outside army invading it. It comes from a 12-year-old Palestinian schoolgirl with a pair of scissors in her pocket and a lot of anger in her heart. And how do you remove that anger? Not by more power, but by some love, by some caring, by some attention to their human rights and to their needs, by giving them dignity, respect, rights, equality, rather than by pushing and oppressing and, and, and keeping them down. In a way, it's a hopeful message. It's a message that says people can't change. Enemies can become friends rather than saying there is eternal enmity and I need to build bigger and higher walls around myself and protect myself against the rest of humanity. Many of you supported the creation of the State of Israel at a time of great stress and urgency where the Jewish people had just survived the Holocaust and you felt the need to establish a safe haven, a place uh, for them uh, in Palestine. Uh, it may have been understandable at that time that all effort had to go into that uh, project. And many of you didn't give any thought to the fact that there were already Palestinians living in that land uh, for whom that was the only homeland that they know. I think now that the State of Israel has been established and is a powerful uh, force in the area, you need to come to terms with the Palestinian Arabs, the indigenous people of that land. They cannot be eliminated. They cannot be ethnically cleansed. They cannot be oppressed and put down and kept down forever. You must find a new formula to live with them, not lord it over them. Somehow the ideal of a Jewish state that serves the Jewish people only cannot work when there's another people already living in that land. Until you find a new formula that gives to the Palestinian people 
rights, dignity, recognition, acceptance of their national identity also within that land, the whole project of the state of Israel is doomed to failure. This is a difficult conversation for you. I understand that. But it's a conversation that you must engage in and engage in immediately. Right now, the state of Israel lords it over all the land of Israel and Palestine. The Palestinian people are either under siege in Gaza, under occupation in the West Bank, uh, under unequal citizenship in Israel itself, or totally exiled in the diaspora. But this people continues to live and exist and want to live. You must find a new formula to live with them, not against them. Because if you don't, the state of Israel itself, I think, is in danger of not surviving. It's not just a question of having more power. It's a question of finding a formula that satisfies the needs of Israeli Jews, but also satisfies the desire of Palestinian Arabs. It cannot be built only on what Jews want. The state of Israel cannot be just the state of the Jews. It somehow must find a way to become the state also of the Palestinian Arabs. It's a difficult conversation, but it's one that you desperately need to carry out. Your duty, your love for Israeli Jews must require you to move in that direction rather than support those elements who just want Israel to be a Jewish place just for the Jews and to hate and oppress its enemies, whoever they are. Palestinians today are your enemies, but they are also your neighbors. They are also the people who are living with you. Whether we like it or not, and whether you like it or not, Palestinian Arabs and Israeli Jews must live together in dignity and perhaps also in equality. That is a vision for the future that you must work for if you love and care about Israel. If I have my history right, the Jewish people were not solely capable of establishing a Jewish state or an Israeli state. There were other national and geopolitical entities involved. What do you have to say to those historic collaborators? Oh, they definitely. I mean, the, the, the powers that created the state of Israel today have a tremendous burden and duty to do something for the Palestinian people. And that is not just rhetorical. It has to be concrete. And they have to do it not only because it's the right thing to do for Palestinians who are the victims, but because ultimately the state of Israel itself cannot survive in the long run without that component of justice and the component of dealing with the original people. 
a lot of the people who supported the state of Israel in its creation were imperial powers who were thinking within the colonial model at a time when the rest of the world was decolonizing uh, and moving away from an imperial and colonial model. Uh, I think there are some unique things about the state of Israel in its creation. Uh, I think that the experience of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust is a, uh, an important component in this mix. Uh, but the realities on the ground require the Zionist movement and the Palestinian nationalist movement to come to terms with each other in totally different ways. Uh, the, the idea of a two-state solution that somehow you can have one group here and one group there simply has not worked precisely because the Israeli component has been putting up all these settlements throughout the occupied territories. Now we have six to 700,000 Jews living in the area that was captured in 1967. And if you don't want to uproot them, and I can understand that you don't, then you must think in new terms of how can they coexist and live together. Not as lord and master and oppressed slave, but as equals within the same entity. Uh, it's, it's, it's a very difficult situation, but it's a necessary conversation to have uh, that, that's based on elements of humanity and equality and dignity rather than power and oppression. Is there anything else at all that you'd like to add to this conversation? Yes, I, I, I'd like to end on a little bit more help, hopeful note. I don't buy the proposition that this enmity between Jews and Arabs is eternal going back to biblical times. It's not true. I don't buy the idea that somehow we are bound to continue to fight and kill each other uh, forever. I don't buy the idea that one side must win and the other side must lose. I look at history and I see examples of people becoming friends. I look at the Germans and the French who fought world wars against each other. And today they go back and forth. Uh, they have trade. They have friendships. They have... I, I look at, at Ireland, where we're North uh, Ireland and England, where people can live together. I look at South Africa. I look at all over the world, there are examples of conflicts being ended and people living together in peace. So... I think things will change and things can change. And, 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 and I am hopeful. I am hopeful. Uh, right now, uh, you know, I, I am not very optimistic, but I'm full of hope. And, and there's a difference between hope and optimism. And, and, and my, uh, my hope is built on the belief that, as Martin Luther uh, King said, that the arc of history is long but it bends towards justice. It bends towards justice. I think justice can and will prevail in the Holy Land. 
But it's not going to be based on one side defeating or dominating or obliterating or demonizing or, or totally annihilating the other side. It's based on reconciliation. It's based on mutual respect and acceptance. Jonathan, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you very much for coming in, for informing us, for challenging us, and uh, inspiring us towards justice. May God bless you in your work and in your travels. Thank you very much. Thank you. That concludes our conversation with Jonathan Kutab, lawyer and active advocate for peace in Palestine and Israel. For books, videos, and more on the history and the possibilities for peace in Palestine and Israel, visit commonword.ca. Thank you for listening in these past 10 years. And remember that all past episodes are archived for streaming online at commonword.ca. I'm your host, Dan Dick. Farewell, listeners, and remember always that no matter where you find yourself, you are called, equipped, and sent to be the church in the world today. Thanks for listening. As you go out from here, may the Lord go with you. The face of God shine on you every day. We are sent by God wherever we are living, salt and light as people of the way. sent by God wherever we are living salt and light as people of the way